sermon scripture text this morning comes up from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Again, that's Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's open with another word of prayer. Christ, as we approach your holy word, Oh, may you speak to us. May your word be unchained. May it be powerful. May our hearts be ready to receive. May we be sent out from here full of the Spirit, full of love for our Lord, ready to engage in the work that you have called us to. Put aside all distractions in our minds and hearts. Jesus, may this time be set aside for us to hear your word. Pray this in your holy and your beautiful name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in a sermon 
which later became an essay titled The Weight of Glory, wrote these memorable words. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis tells us our problem is that we just don't want enough. Our desires are too small. We settle for so much less. Paul is in the, the city of Athens, the great intellectual capital of the ancient world. And his message to the Athenians small. The gods they worshiped, whether it was the idols or the god of human reason and thinking, it was too small. He says, your thinking is blinkered. The imagination of your heart is too provincial. Again, as Paul ministered in Athens, the center of Greek thought of the ancient world, he wasn't impressed with the best of human thinking and reasoning and philosophy had to give, but rather he had one basic message, and it was this, your gods are too small. The hundreds, if not thousands, of statues that would have filled Athens, statues to gods and goddesses, likely made by the most talented artists of the day, only showed a stunted imagination of what God could really be like and who he really was. The very best of Athenian philosophy, the brightest minds, only led to either cheap hedonism, just pleasure-seeking, or a ridiculous pantheism. And in fact, with Athenians, it was their very pride in what they could do and think and who they were that kept them from being able to fathom the God who is, who is presented to us in Jesus, the God who is both holy and also near, the God who is both powerful and yet personal, and the God who could and did raise the dead. Again, the gods of the Athenians, whether it was the actual idols filling the city or just the gods of human reason and ability, these gods were too small to understand and to accept what the living God had done in Jesus Christ. And in the end, their gods were just too human to ever bring them into the presence of the real and living God. Our outline for us this morning as we look at Paul's ministry in Athens is the first point. God's wisdom meets human wisdom. Second point, your gods are too small. So our first point, God's wisdom meets human wisdom. Now again, a quick recap. Paul was in the um, city in Asia Minor, Troas. He was in Troas, which is in modern-day Turkey. And God gives him a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come and share the gospel with us. And so they leave modern-day Turkey. They go into modern-day northern Greece, the area of Macedonia. They go to Philippi and then Thessalonica and Berea. And in each of these cities, as Paul goes and preaches the gospel, it leads to an uproar in the city. In Philippi, he's beaten and jailed. In Thessalonica and Berea, he has to flee for his life. And so he's left Berea. His brothers and sisters in Christ have taken him out of Macedonia for his own safety all the way to Athens, significantly south of Macedonia. And they leave him there. And they go back to Berea to try to 
calm, what's been disturbed. And Paul's waiting in Athens. That's not where he was meant to be. That's not where Christ had called him. That's not in Macedonia. He's just waiting there until Timothy and Silas can come and join him. And that's where we pick up in this first point, where God's wisdom meets human wisdom. Now, Athens, helpful to have a little bit of information about Athens. Athens was the intellectual capital of the Mediterranean world. It had an unparalleled history of intellectual achievement, cultural achievement, political achievement. It was the cradle of what became modern-day democracy. We, as Americans, are very thankful for Athens, although their democracy did not look like ours. Separate note, not all were created equal in Athens. But it was the home of of thinkers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the schools that they started, which existed even up to this day after them. Athens had such a reputation that it became shorthand in kind of the language of the day to refer to the best of Greek thinking. Um, So uh, a Christian thinker, Tertullian, writing a century later, again, when he wanted to describe how Christianity interacted with the best of Greek thinking, he said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He just used Athens as shorthand for the best and the brightest of Greek thought. So Paul coming to Athens, again, it's not just another city in his missionary journey, but it really shows the gospel coming into contact with the center of human reasoning, the center of human thinking the most impressive that we as humans in our fallen limited state have to give on questions about purpose and meaning and why we're here. And the gospel confronts that in our story today. And what Paul does in this city is actually quite instructive for us because every city, in some way or other, is a little Athens. And every Christian, like Paul, is an ambassador of the gospel. And so the way that Paul interacts with Athens is instructive for us who also live in the city of Louisville. And what we're going to look at is three different things that is instructive for us. First, we're going to see what Paul saw. Second, what Paul felt. And then third, what Paul did. Again, as God's wisdom meets human wisdom. So first, what Paul saw, verse 16. Again, we're in Acts chapter 17. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Again, Athens would have been a city with incredible architecture, incredible, beautiful paintings. The sculptures would have been the highest level of human artistic achievement. Very impressive. There would have been much what you call common grace, echoes of God's truth and goodness and beauty in this city. Furthermore, we've got to think of Paul, right? I mean, Paul, Paul was a nerd, as a self-proclaimed nerd. I say that without any judgment. But he would have grown up here by Athens as the place, the homeland of, again, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so here comes Paul, who has no small mind himself. You can imagine he'd be pretty excited. Like, if there was a city I could visit in the ancient world, it would have been Athens. And what does Paul see? It's not the grandeur of the city. It's not all these impressive things he sees city is drowning in idols. It's interesting, the word it says there, the city was full of idols. That's actually one word. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. They're not 100% sure what it means. But if you just take it literally, it's literally the city was drowning, submerged in all of these idols. There are idols everywhere. As Paul comes, he doesn't see one of the greatest cities of all time and all of its intellectual achievement at the height of its powers, 
What he sees is a city that is lost in ignorance and unbelief. He sees idols everywhere. As John Stott describes it, Paul was not impressed, rather he was oppressed by the idolatrous use to which the God-given artistic creativity of the Athenians was being put. Again, what did Paul see? He saw idols everywhere. And so how is this instructive for our life in a city? Well, first thing I have to say is that I love living in a city. I'm a city boy. Wouldn't want to live anywhere else. There are amazing advantages of living in a city. So for instance, last week, my wife and I, we went to a free performance of the Louisville Civic Orchestra. It is an orchestra made up of current professional musicians, former professional musicians, and just some like very, very talented musicians, maybe who majored in college but do something else now. And they put on regular performances for free out of love for the music, to share it with the community. And it was excellent. It was excellent music. Uh, I grew up in a town of 10,000 people, and I can tell you that you don't encounter that very often in the country. There are benefits of being in a city. With all that being said, we can also become blind to the reality that in a city there is also multiplied darkness. That there are idols everywhere. That every city, because it's made up of people who, have, who are living under the rule of the prince of this world, that therefore every city will have large parts of it that are moving against God and his wisdom. Louisville, like Athens, is full of idols. The question is, are we like Paul? Do we see them? You know, every city has a multitude of idols. In fact, every human has many idols in our hearts that we are tempted towards. God substitutes. But oftentimes, cities might have one or two or three that are particularly prevalent. And if I had to say, what is one prevalent idol in the city of Louisville? I would say it's this. It's comfort. We love our comfort. This is a medium-sized city. We have an amazing food scene, uh, which when you have three kids, like, it's too expensive for me to actually enjoy it. But I do occasionally get out. And there's an amazing food scene. You go to restaurants with incredibly delicious food where you can go and you feel really good. Right? We're, the, we're the bourbon capital of the world. We love to feel really good. Our rush hour begins at 4 and ends at 4.30. Not like... D.C., where it went from 6 to 9. We orient so much of our lives around comfort. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Again, Paul enters into Athens. He's not impressed with what was impressed about the city, but rather he sees that there are idols everywhere. Second, what Paul felt. Again, look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He doesn't just kind of intellectually note, oh, hey, look, at there's all these idols, all these false gods all around me, but he's, he's moved by it. It bothers Paul. It bothers him that there are idols everywhere. It's interesting, the word that he uses there, provoked, it's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, for when God was provoked by the idolatry of his own people. Same word. Now to understand what Paul is feeling and why he's feeling it, we have to ask, why was God provoked when his people would engage in idolatry? And it tells us in Exodus 34, 14, God tells Israel, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God would be provoked when his people would worship other gods, when people would turn to God's substitutes, because he was jealous 
for them. Now that may make us a little bit uncomfortable. Think of God being jealous, because jealousy is a bad thing, right? Like, don't be jealous. When you're jealous, it's usually a sin. So make us uncomfortable. Think that, wait, God is jealous? What does that mean? Okay, what is jealousy first? Jealousy is just the resentment of rivals. Uh, When we're jealous of someone, we resent that they may be rivaling us in some way or other. And in some contexts, it is sin. So for instance, if you were an Olympic athlete and you were jealous of the success of another Olympic athlete, that is a sinful kind of envy. Because you don't have, I mean, no Olympic athlete has monopoly rights over all success at the Olympics. Other rivals are permitted to be there. On the flip side, in a marriage, if there is infidelity and the offended spouse is jealous, well, that is a good jealousy because there is not supposed to be a rival in that situation. The offending party has no right to be there, and so the spouse has every right to feel resentment towards that rival. Well, similarly with God, God feels jealousy rightly and justly, for no one has any right to try and be God's rival in our hearts. He is one who created us, who made us for himself, who is worthy of all of our worship, and there is no one, no person, no thing in all the created cosmos has any right to compete in our hearts for his worship and his affection. And so God is rightly jealous over the affections of our hearts. And so when it says that Paul is provoked, what he's doing is he's feeling jealousy on behalf of God's glory because God deserves the worship of every Athenian and it bothers him that they're giving it to anyone or anything else. Again, Paul's not offended on his own behalf. It's not like he's like, it's not like the Athenians have done anything to offend him or that they owe anything to him, but it's that They're not giving to God the glory that is his due. People who are made for God, who are animated by God's spirit, were prostituting their hearts left, right, and center. And it bothered Paul. Oh, may it bother us too. Here's my question of application as we look at what Paul felt. Is your view of God big enough that it bothers you when he does not receive the glory that he's due, when his own creation dishonors him. Uh, This past fall, I was talking to my old middle school youth pastor who is now uh, the director of InterVarsity on a Christian, sorry, not a Christian, on a private college campus. And we were just catching up. He was telling me about the ministry that year, and he was sharing about his kind of puzzlement and discouragement and even frustration with some of his student leaders because in college ministry, that first month is so critical because, you, you know, you have freshmen coming to campus. They're uniquely open to talking to strangers because they don't know anybody. And so whether they're Christians and you're trying to recruit them to be part of your ministry or they're non-Christians and you're trying to engage in gospel conversations, it's just like there is this limited window and that window will close and all of a sudden they will not be as open and it's just this strategic time you've got to be out talking to people. And his student leaders, like, not only were they uncomfortable, which most of us are uncomfortable talking to strangers, but they were resistant. They're like, I don't understand why it's my job to tell anyone else how they should live. Like, Jesus works for me, but why should I be telling other people that he should work for them too? And a guy's name is Brian Moore, my old youth pastor. I was just like, boy, I, I don't know, that's a tough one. Because you don't want to, like, guilt these kids into doing stuff, but also it's like, there's just something incredibly broken about that. And I thought about that as I was 
reading through Acts today, and it occurred to me what was going on in those students' hearts and minds. Is their God was, they're too small. Their understanding of God was just too small. Look, if, if God is just right, a therapeutic help to get us through the anxieties and stresses of our life, well, like, then if, you know, if, if you're anxious, sure, I can give you some help, but if you're doing okay, what do I have to offer? But if God is the holy creator, beautiful beyond description, glorious beyond compare, the fire that burns, the light that is unquenchable, the source of every desiring heart, if that's who God is, then, how could we keep from being bothered when God doesn't receive his glory? Is our view of God big enough that it bothers us when his own creation dishonors him by giving themselves to idols? Can we say with Henry Martin, an early missionary to India, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always dishonored. So we see what Paul saw, he saw idols, we see what Paul felt, he felt provoked, a jealousy for God's glory and honor. But then he does something about it, and this is very important, what Paul does, verses 17 to 21. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. This is so important. Paul's jealousy for the glory of God didn't lead him to write a scathing blog post or to light up Twitter or to make a podcast it didn't lead him to retreat into his safe Christian community. It didn't lead him to despise those they disagreed with. Paul's holy provocation led him to engage with those very people who were dishonoring God. It led him to draw near to them. First, obviously, out of zeal for God's glory, but also out of compassion for those who are made in God's image. Paul doesn't stay in the synagogue with the good moral Jews, the safe people who are like him. He goes out into the marketplace. Marketplace was kind of a public square. People would hang out, you know, shoot the breeze, latest gossip, talk about stuff. Socrates used to hang out in the Athenian marketplace and debate with people. And what we know from archaeological digs is that the marketplace was flooded with all kinds of idols. Many of them were not PG-13, crude. And that's where Paul goes. You get it? His holy botheredness against all this led him to go to where the greatest concentration of the idols were, to go into the darkest place and engage people there with the hope of the gospel. You know, if, if, if one danger of living in a city is that we become desensitized to the idols, we just don't see them, it doesn't bother us. The other danger is that we see them and it bothers us and then we just turn into kind of grumpy Pharisees. We're just kind of sighing all the time about the... Oh, 
this age so bad. And we just stay within ourselves and we retreat into our, high, into our safe places. But the sign that our provocation is a holy provocation is if it leads us to engage those very people with the gospel who are far from Jesus, to engage them in love and in earnestness. And so, brothers and sisters, many of you, when you leave today, you're going to walk out those doors or you'll go out through the back. Either way, I want you to pause just for a moment before you leave and look up the street and look down the street. And I want you to know that almost every house is one where God is not worshipped, but idols reign. And let that bother you. Because God is worthy to be worshipped in every home in Germantown, in every home in Louisville. Let that weigh on you for a moment. Don't just jump in your car and go. Just stop and think and let it bother you. And then let that move you to pray that God would send down his spirit and begin to change hearts. And then come out with us in March as we resume our neighborhood walks to meet our neighbors and tell them about the love of Christ. So this is our first point. As God's wisdom meets human wisdom, we see how Paul interacts with, with the Athenian city, and it gives us so much instruction and example for how we live in our city of Louisville. But our second point, your God is too small. Let me read verses 22 to 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. It's very important to notice Paul first he first seeks to understand his audience. I mean, he's spending all this time in the marketplace just talking to people, asking questions, debating, and reasoning. He's walking around the city. He's observing. His eyes are open. He's not on a vacation tour. He's not doing tourist events. He's, he's observing and seeing and trying to understand the city. And then he connects with them. He knows enough about them to know that they, have, they, they care so much about appeasing every possible deity. They even have an altar to an unknown God. And so Paul's able to step into that space and say, look, I'm, yes, there is a God you don't know about, and let me tell you. He first seeks to understand them, and he connects with them, but then, and this is the brunt of what he says, he then confronts them. And because he's taken time to understand them, his confrontation actually speaks to where they're at. It makes sense to them. Now, before we get into how Paul confronts, I have a quick note on, on the two schools of philosophy that he mentions, not just because I was a philosophy major and enjoy this stuff, but because Paul is actually addressing three different crowds in his response. First are the kind of the normal person who worships idols. 
But then you also had the Epicureans and the Stoics, who were kind of the intelligentsia of Athens, the intellectual elites, who didn't really probably believe in a lot of the idols. They had their own ideas. And Paul is able to address all three. And so it's helpful just to have some understanding of the Epicureans and Stoics so that you can really see what Paul's doing in his, in his sermon. So the Epicureans, they, uh, they believed in the gods, but they thought that they were very distant and weren't involved. And so frankly, they weren't very relevant to their life. And so the idea was, look, the gods aren't near. They don't care. Just do whatever makes you happy. They're kind of like the secular agnostics. Like, we don't really know if you can know. The secular agnostics who then like to party. So go have a good time. The uh, Greek philosopher Diogenes described them like this. Nothing to fear in God. Again, he's not near. Don't worry about him. Who knows if God exists? Nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be attained. Pain can be endured. And they were the kind of secular agnostics who liked to party. Then you had the Stoics. The Stoics were a bigger group, and they were more like pan pantheists. So the divine is something that's present in all of us. There's a spark of divinity in you. God is in you, and he's in the world, and we're all united by our shared kinship in the divinity. Uh, it's actually very similar to Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas was very influenced by Eastern mysticism, and so his understanding of the force uh, if you remember the scene where uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is first meeting Luke Skywalker and describing the Force, and he describes it to Luke this way. He says, the Force, it's an, it's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together. And you can imagine Sir, whatever his name is, his voice as I say that. Stokes would have believed something very similar. God is this kind of energy force that's present everywhere and unites us. And so Paul, as he seeks to understand and, and, and connect, he then confronts these three groups with three different truths. And these are kind of how we're breaking down the second point. The first is that God is creator and Lord and other. The second is that God is personal and near. And the third is that God is judge. So first, Paul then confronts by saying, no, 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 God is creator, Lord, and other. Look at verse 24 to 25. So again, he's saying, this unknown God, you don't know him, I proclaim. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is creator and Lord. That is bedrock truth for Christians. God is the one who created everything. He authored everything. He designed everything that is. God is not just some supremely smart being who kind of worked with what was there and then put together the world, but everything that exists, being itself, has its beginning in God. Everything that exists, that ever could exist, begins with God. And because God is the creator of everything, he therefore has unique rights over everything. He's authoritative over the world. He's the maker. He owns everything. And so he deserves worship in a way that nothing else does. Am I only on this mic? Okay, good now. <clears throat> he's the creator, and he's Lord. And what that means is not only that he's authoritative, but he's also currently the Lord. He didn't just make a world and then kick it off to go on its own, but he continues to reign over the world as we speak. But here's the thing, because God is creator and Lord, he is therefore other, which means he is different from us. He's not somehow just the, you know, the best of us projected large, 
but he's fundamentally, categorically different than we are. Again, he doesn't dwell in buildings. That's what Paul says. He's not a God who lives in buildings. Our most powerful people show their power by their houses or their palaces or their fortresses. Our most powerful people need buildings to guard them against the elements. God does not. He is not like us. Likewise, our most powerful in this world need people to serve them. That's how they demonstrate their power. God doesn't need anyone to serve him. He is not like us. Again, as God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's interesting in this first truth that God is creator, Lord, and other. Again, he is confronting all three groups that he's encountering in Athens. First, the idol worshipers. He's like, look, God created everything. How could he possibly be anything like this statue that you made that will never change, that will tarnish and rust over time? How could there be any reflection between the God of all and this piece of metal? But he also confronts the Stoics. God is not, again, one with all of us. We do not have sparks of the divinity inside us. God is separate, different, other. He created us. But he also confronts the Epicureans. God is not absent. He is the ruler now. And he is ruling over us. He's not an irrelevant part of our reality. He is the most relevant part of this world you can imagine because he's the creator Lord. So that's the first truth he uses to confront the Athenians. God is creator and Lord and therefore other. But second, God is also personal and near. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has determined the numbers of your days. Psalm 16 says, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. God's ordered my time. Intimately involved in the minutia of our lives. He's not distant. Yes, he's the creator and the Lord, but he is intimately involved. As Jesus put it, he's numbered the hairs of your head. Every single one of us here. He is the creator, Lord, but he is intimately involved in even the minutia of our lives. He keeps going in this theme of the nearness of God, that verse 27, God has created us, he set our boundaries, that they, people, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Again, Paul doesn't only confront the distant gods of Epicureans, but he also confronts the impersonal kind of world soul of the Stoics. No, God is, is, is not just an energy force that we try to find some connection to, but he's someone we can know. In fact, he created us to know him. He wants us to know him, which means he's personal. He has agency. Someone that we can seek and find. In fact, God is so near to us, we don't have to go on some quest to find God. We don't have to go on some kind of religious pilgrimage. What separates us from God is not geography. It's our ignorance and our sin. But he's near to every one of us. And then he continues on in verse 28. For even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being as like gold or silver, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And God is, yes, he's the creator, Lord, but he's also near to us. In fact, he's so near to us that we resemble him. God didn't create you like someone who created a house. Uh, someone created this, this church 70 years ago. There was an architect who designed it. You cannot look at this church and know anything about the architect as a person. You might know something about his ideas of beauty and, and whatever, but you can't know anything about what he was like, whether he was married, what he loved, what he did on the weekends. There was nothing inherent about the architect that you can learn from looking at how he created this house. But when God created you, it's more like having a child. And your children reflect you. They resemble you. My kids look like me, for better or for worse. They have my personality traits, for better or for worse. They are different than me. They are not the same as me. But they resemble me. And what Paul is saying is, look, we are made in the image of God. He's so near to us that we can see him, in a sense, by looking at each other, because we are his offspring, not literally, but we're made in his image. And again, of course, if that's the case, I mean, I could make a beautiful statue of Jake, and yet we know that that wouldn't capture even a fraction of the complexity of a human being. How could we think an idol could capture the complexity of a God who made us in all our complexities? It's absurd. It doesn't work. And so again, God is creator, Lord, and therefore other. God is also near and personal. He's very present to us. He's near to the brokenhearted. But lastly, God is judge. Verse 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God, again, is not one who dwells on the top of a mountain that we have to go on a pilgrimage to reach. But he's near to every one of us. He's revealed himself in his creation. So what that means is that when we don't believe in God, it's because we don't want to believe in God. It means our ignorance is culpable. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We've suppressed the knowledge of God. And God is one who will hold us to account. You know, it's interesting, as we go through this, up to this point, and through even this point, the, the Athenians are content to listen. I mean, Paul has some heavy-hitting words. He calls the most intellectual group in the world ignorant. If you're a student, call your professor ignorant, see how that goes. And they're willing to listen. He's able to speak about God as a judge, and they're willing to listen. What blows the roof off the house is when he mentions the resurrection. This is verse 32 and 33. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear, about, we'll hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. The idea is it brings the meeting to a crashing halt. All of a sudden, people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. Ridiculous. And the meeting ends in a cacophony of voices. Isn't that interesting? It's the resurrection that brings it all to an end. Now, some people have pointed out how is it that Paul makes it the whole way through this talk? And he never mentions the cross or the crucifixion. Uh, and in fact, there have been liberal scholars who've tried to use this as evidence that Paul couldn't have actually said this sermon because how could the apostle of the cross have given a sermon where he doesn't mention the cross? 
And a couple I want to address this because I think it's important. A, a couple thoughts on that. First, we are getting a summary of Paul's sermon. We're not getting word for word. You could read Paul's address in about 45 seconds. Likely Paul sp- spoke for an hour, two hours. We are literally getting bullet points of what Paul talked about. So there was likely much more that is not included. Second, Paul's cut off. We don't know. Maybe he would have gone into a long uh, explanation of the cross after this, but he's cut off halfway through. We don't know what the whole sermon would have involved. But third and most importantly, he mentions the resurrection. And, and, and I think the assumption there is you can't talk about the resurrection unless you first explain how someone died. You can't talk about someone coming back to life unless you explain how they died. And so I think the idea is the assumption is that Paul, when he gets to the cross and the resurrection, that's when everyone's just like, this is ridiculous. I don't have time for this. And this is what Paul writes when he wrote to the Corinthians, a city that was nearby, similar cultural milieu. And he said, look, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The reason why the talk of the cross and the resurrection blew the roof off the house in this Athenian meeting is because the cross and the resurrection is the end of all human strength and wisdom, human glory. Because what the cross and the resurrection says to every person, your strength is far too limited and your sin is far too deep and your wisdom is far too small. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Nothing. And judgment is coming. But God loved you, and he sent his son to die for you. And he is the wisdom of God. He is the strength you'll never have. He bore all the sin you'll never be able to get rid of. For those who understand our state before God, a holy God, that is the best news in the world. I thought there was no hope. Christ died for me. For those who don't understand foolishness. I've entitled the sermon, Your God is Too Small, because at the end, many of the Athenians could not believe because the place they had for God in their hearts and their minds was just frankly too small to fathom the God who really is. They approached God so dependent on what they could reason out, on what they could make sense of, that when they encountered the true and living God, they just couldn't accept it. The Athenians would only believe what made human sense, common sense. But the God who really is, as we would expect a true God, he confronts us. And there are parts of him that we will never fathom or understand. We all have different human tendencies that if we don't fight against them, if we don't correct for them, could lead us the same way it led the Athenians. So for instance, some of us in this room, we tend to view God as imminent. We focus on God's nearness, his kindness, his love. For others of us, our tendency is to see God's transcendence, his, his power, and his glory, his difference from us. And the, and, the, and the natural human fallen tendency is to hold one at the expense of the other. So we focus on God's nearness and his love at the expense of his holiness and his power. Or we focus on God's holiness and power at the expense of his nearness 
and love. And the reason why we do that, brothers and sisters, is because in human experience, powerful men and women are not like gentle lambs. The reason why we can't fathom a God who brings it together is because that's not how this world works. But that is who God is. We worship Jesus, who Revelation says is the Lion of Judah, a conquering king before whom darkness flees. But what does it say? It says, the Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. They're one and the same. Our God is both a fearsome and holy God whose voice makes the mountains quake, and yet he is so gentle. He would not break a bruised reed. Our God's wrath and judgment will consume those who hate him. And yet his mercy and grace will be shown to a thousand generations. We don't always understand how that can be, how that fits together, but we don't have to. We don't have to have a logical schema for how we can make sense that God is nothing like us. We don't need to know all that to be able to join in with creation and with the saints throughout time and place and history, crying out before the throne, worthy is the lamb who is slain, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are better than we can imagine. You are more glorious than we can fathom. You are more beautiful than we can describe. And your love sets our hearts on fire. May we know you not just with the hearing of our ears, but with the knowing of our hearts. Thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. May we hear what it had to say. Pray this in your beautiful and your holy name. Amen.